0: reading is from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25 starting at verse 14 and can be found in our church Bibles on page 994 or on the screen in front of you so starting at verse 14 again it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one who was given two talents, and he gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents bought the other five. "'Master,' he said, "'you entrusted me with your five talents. "'See, I have gained five more.' His master replied, "'Well done, good and faithful servant.' Then the master, then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown, and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and went out, and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied. You wicked lazy servant, you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he who will have an abundance. Whoever does not have... Even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Are there any gentlemen here today who have the Christian name Timothy? Timothy? Any Timothys? There's a prize if you have the second name that's mentioned by Paul in his letter to the Philippians. He mentions two fellow workers. One is Timothy and the other, and there's a prize if you have the name, is Epaphroditus. <laughs> Epaphroditus. I don't think uh, I've come across that recently. And Paul is writing to the Philippians and mentioning these two fellow workers who've contributed to the spreading of the gospel. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I can see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord And that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life make up for the help you could not give me. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Keith and Verena, thank you very much for those readings. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open in front of you at the Philippians passage. That was page 1179 if you've closed your Bibles. We'll be digging into it in just a moment. For those of you who may be new here, uh, my name is Jit, or Jitesh, I'm the associate vicar here, and we've been looking over the past term at this wonderful letter, the letter to the Philippians that the Apostle Paul wrote at the end of his life. And we've been working our way through systematically, and we've come now to some personal remarks, really, of two of his friends, two of his co-laborers, co-workers, Two servants of Christ who wants to commend to the Philippian church. And as we dig into this this morning, I hope that from their example, we'll see some wonderful gems for us to live out in our lives as well. Before we begin, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might open it up before us, that we might behold wondrous things in this your law. Lord, we pray that our hearts might burn for you afresh, we pray that our ears would be open to hear your voice, our minds to comprehend your word, and Lord, that our lives would be affected, that we might be changed more and more into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen. Amen. Well, this summer I had the great privilege of holidaying in somewhere called San Diego in Southern California. And it's a wonderful place, lots of sun and beach weather and uh, laid-back culture. But one of the highlights for me was that I did, for the very first time, something that's an American institution, really. I went to a baseball game, what they call a ball game. Um, And I went as a home team supporter. I was wearing the San Diego Padres cap. And I sat down in this amazing baseball uh, uh, amphitheater, really. it's designed like an amphitheater. And they were playing, as the home team, a notorious team called the Boston Red Sox. Um, Now, I I went with slight trepidation because it was known throughout the country that Red Sox fans were the most passionate about, actually. They really were into their baseball. And I was sat there next to two huge, great Red Sox fans watching this game. And they'd travelled hundreds of and probably thousands, if you think about it, across America of miles to get there and spent lots of money, and they were there waiting, and willing their team to win. And you can guess what happened. They lost. And I thought, oh, no, what's this going to mean? And I kind of quickly took off my cap. and pretended. <laughs> but interestingly, straight after the game, there was no sense of tension... There was no sense of aggression. There was actually just open friendship and camaraderie. Even as we were all squeezed into the metro system on the way back to our various places, there was just a sense of fellowship. And I thought, oh, how different, how different this is to some of the games that I've experienced here. You you couldn't do that in a football game. You couldn't mix the fans together. There would just be animosity. I thought, oh, this is, an, this is a light relief that actually, oh, this works well here. And I went home thinking, I'm going to try this again. I'm going to try this again. Well, I wanted to share that and begin with that, not because I'm commending baseball to you. Um, it's an interesting sport. But really because of what's going on in the Philippian church that we have been looking at over the last few weeks. One of their key issues, one of the things that they're struggling with is this idea of animosity and tension between various factions within the church that are rivaling each other and seeking power for themselves. And Paul repeatedly, throughout this letter, writes to them and teaches them, seeks to instruct them, saying, get with the program, drop these tensions and be united in Christ. He does it three specific times, actually. He does it at the beginning of chapter two. He says, I want you to imitate Christ's humility counting others as more significant than yourselves, and then that one for Christ him, making the point. Just before our passage, he speaks about not being those who grumble and complain and fall out with each other, but instead being pure children of light. And actually, later on in the letter, we'll see he speaks to two particular leading ladies of the church, e- Eudia and Sittachi, who have fallen out with each other. And they're dividing and tearing the church apart, it would appear. And he's saying, no, just that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But Paul's ultimate method of healing the division and the conflict that's going on in this church is actually not just his teaching in this letter, but actually to send two people to them, one after another. Two people who would incarnate, who would model a completely different attitude and way of doing things. We've heard their names already. He'd send to them first Epaphroditus, who they'd sent to Paul to help him in prison, but he's sending him back to help them with their issues. And then he's going to send them his best friend, his co-worker, his former apprentice, Timothy. And both these men would be completely different to the way that they were they would show something of what it should look like to live in harmony and peace. They would be, as it were, an antidote, a living antidote to the disease that was spreading through their church. And I want to look very quickly at two aspects of these guys. I've been studying them and looking at them. I've been challenged. They're such great models for us. And I've been humbled. I don't match up to them at all. I long to, but I don't. And as we read them, I hope that many of us might long to match up to these models, these great guys, part of that first generation of Christian witnesses that changed the world. And there's two simple things I want to draw out about these guys. Firstly, they knew that the world didn't revolve around them. They knew this, that actually it wasn't about them, it was about Jesus. That their world revolved around him. Let me read about Timothy in verse 20. Paul describes Timothy saying, I have no one else like him who takes genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Paul makes a huge claim here. There's no one else like him that I have with me. Everyone else looks out for number one themselves, their own interests. But you know, Timothy, he's not like that. And When I'm sending him to you, you know that he is completely different. His motives, his interests, his desires are all about Jesus. They'd known that since he was a young lad preaching with Paul at the setup of the Philippian church. They'd seen it throughout that continuing ministry over the decades that he lived for one person and one person alone. That he'd given up his life, he'd, he'd had to leave family to join Paul on his missionary journeys. He'd gone through thick and thin with him, he'd served in the gospel, and all because he had heard the call of Christ. He decided that he's the one I'm going to live for. My world is going to revolve around him and not myself. And the same is true of Epaphroditus. Let me read from verse 25 about him. Paul says, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. I want you to imagine the scene in the Philippian church when they hear about Paul in prison in Rome. We don't know how they hear about it, but they call a church meeting and say, we've got to do something to help him out. He helped found our church. He's been so good to us over the years. What are we going to do? We know that, actually, in Roman prisons, there was no welfare support. The only food and drink that you had were things that were brought in from outside. And we know that the prison in Rome, especially, was one of the worst in the empire. And they would have known that as well. And they would have asked the question, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they thought amongst themselves, well, let's send someone. Let's send someone to help him. Let's send him with a gift of money to help him purchase food. And let's send someone who would be on permanent secondment, who can just be there with Paul at his side, helping him in this tough time. And they look around themselves, as we might do, thinking, who's going to go? (laughs) Who's going to go? And this guy, Epaphroditus, steps forward, says, yes, I'm willing to go, travel the thousands of miles from Philippi to Rome, on foot, at great danger, and actually to give up my life, to press the pause button on my plans and my desires, to be at Paul's side, to help him, because I believe that this is Christ's work, to support him in this time. He says, I'll go, I'll do this. Again, someone who had decided that it's not about me. It really isn't. It's about what Christ is doing. It's about him. And I'm willing to give things up for that reason. These two guys are outstanding amongst their generation. They're rare gems. are people that have chosen to say, my world doesn't revolve around me at all. Not one single bit. It's about someone else completely. And I want to suggest for us today that This is is something that's needed as much today as it was then in that first generation of followers of Christ. You see, we live in an increasingly narcissistic age where everything is about us. Consumer-driven, what's often been called, called the rise of the cult of the individual, just about us. You can see it every time you open a newspaper what are the main articles? Well they're about people that have chosen to make it about themselves and causing problems you can see it in our main consumer devices that we cherish and love, the iPod and the iMac and the iPad, it's all about I isn't it? It's all about me and that is disastrous let me suggest that is disastrous I want you to imagine a stage performance where five people initially are on the stage, and they say to each other, I want you to move around me. And then 10 people are on the stage, then 50, then 100, and they all say the same thing. Everyone else needs to move around me. What's going to happen? It just leads to chaos, doesn't it? It doesn't work. And I want to humbly suggest that's why we're seeing some things that we're seeing at the moment. This individualistic, me centre culture just isn't working. The rise of sexual violence and of mental health issues, of family breakup. They're just effects of this culture, saying it's about me, all about me, harming others, causing them destruction. It's just about me and my desires, what I want. But Christians, let me say, are meant to live completely differently. They're meant to model something else. They say, no, actually, it's not about me. Me, you, and everyone else chooses to orientate their lives, to revolve around someone else, someone who gave their life for me, and say, we're going to follow him, and choose to center our lives on him. And doing that together leads to peace, leads to harmony, and it leads to the fullness of life, as life is lived the way it's meant to be. Because we've chosen to say, it's not about me at all. No, not one bit. I'm going to send my life on someone else. Now, if you do this, no doubt the response of many other people will be to say, you're absolutely nuts if we're honest. No doubt for Timothy and Epaphroditus, the response to their lives, provocative as they were, were, what are you doing? Why are you living life like that? Can't you see that you're going to end up in danger? Can't you see that that isn't safe? Can't you see that that's an absurd way of living? And I think their response and our response should be, no, that which seems foolish in the eyes of other people is actually the wisest way of living, there is. Don't know if you remember the scene from the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, one of my favourite films. And uh, there's a scene where they're trying to work out which one in the knights' um, little cave is the Holy Grail, the cup that Christ supposedly used at the Last Supper. And the Nazi commandant takes this glowing, glittering goblet of gold. And scoops up some water, and it seems like the obvious choice. This is surely the chalice that Christ would have used, and drinks from it. And do you remember what happens? He shrivels up and dies. But then Indy, our wonderful hero, works it out. He chooses a clay goblet, something very small, something very humble, but something probably a carpenter's son would have used at the Last Supper. Fills it up with water, and it brings what? It brings life, and it brings healing. And you remember what the knight says to him? You have chosen wisely. You've chosen something foolish, but actually you've chosen wisely. And Timothy, Epaphroditus, and each and every one of us choose wisely if we choose to live a life revolving around Christ, centered on him. We choose wisely. The Bible teaches that Our lives are always meant to look like this. We were never meant to live for ourselves. That would just lead to fracture and chaos. It was from before. And part of Christ's redemption is to reorientate us and to turn us around and to get it right. No, it's meant to be lived around him. Nothing else will work. My apologies for yet another science illustration. Um, but I used one last week and people didn't complain. But... um, In the medieval age, there was a theory that abounded which tried to work out why, looking out at the universe, the planets moved as they did. Because in that time, they believed that all the planets, all the stars, revolved around us. But the patterns of the planets going round in the night sky didn't quite work and fit that theory. And so they they devised a really interesting system called epicycles, which was the idea that actually these planets moved in circles as they circled us. And that's why they moved as they seemed in the night sky. But that didn't quite fit the measurements even still. And so they devised yet another theory called epicycles of epicycles, that actually these planets moved in little circles of little circles of a big circle that moved around us. And it still didn't work. It still didn't work. And of course the obvious solution, which, which, which it took a long time for them to accept, is because you've got it wrong, they don't revolve around us. But actually we and they revolve around the sun. And as soon as that was worked out, oh, it, it all works, it all makes sense. Oh, that's the way it's supposed to be. I want to say for us, if we try and live lives revolving around us, it's just not going to work. Try as hard as you will. Try to work it out in the way that you live your relationships. Try to do things that are self-orientated and about you. And it's just not going to work. It won't fit the way things are supposed to be. You're meant to live life evolving around someone else completely. You're meant to live life going around the Son, the Son of God who lived his life for us. If you object to this, let me ask the question. Why would you center your life on anyone else? Upon yourself or upon another person or another thing? What makes you think that they are wise enough, strong enough, and loving enough to cause life to work well? Why do you think that you are? Why do you think other people are? I don't think they are. All of us, fickle and finite, won't be able to take that center spot and make life work well. But there is someone who can and someone who will and someone who offers that to us to live life orientated, revolving around him. And that's what these guys had learnt. Well, the second thing that they had learnt and that they modelled to the Philippian church, was that they had learnt how to love. They'd learnt how to love, that there were men who were marked by love. We see this with Timothy in verse 20. He says this. uh, Paul says this about him. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Paul's paving the way for Timothy's future arrival, saying that he's not someone that's going to come to you to beat you up with a stick. Nor is he someone that's going to come to you just with make-believe concern. He's the real deal. He's a genuine article. He really does care. He loves you guys. He's loved you since we first planted you as a church. And he's loved you consistently. And he comes in a spirit of love, with genuine concern and interest for you. And the same can be said about Epaphroditus. Verse 26 It says that while Epaphroditus was with Paul, he was taken ill. Sad news that reached the Philippian church, but look what it says about how he reacted to his illness. For Epaphroditus longs for all of you and is distressed because he heard... Because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. You see, when he was taken ill at Paul's side, sent there to take care of him, but then he needed taking care of himself, his primary concern wasn't about himself, it appears. His primary concern was about his friends back home who had heard that he was ill. And he was distressed at their distress. And he wanted to go back to reassure them it's all okay. It's okay. I'm going to be okay. And the reason that's so important for us this morning is that illness, like nothing else, causes us to become very self centered sometimes. Men, especially. It's why there is something called man flu. It's just because we complain more, and so it seems like a greater thing. I know for myself that whenever I'm ill with something slight, I want all the sympathy. I want everyone to take care of me. This is life and death stuff here. We start to think about only ourselves. But here's Epaphroditus, who is, we seem to read, at death's door. But his concern wasn't for himself. It was for his friends who'd heard about his illness. And they were saying, oh, what's happening to him? And his genuine love for them meant, I want to go back and reassure them it's all okay. He's another person that's just marked with overflowing love. And both these people, Timothy and Epaphroditus, when they came back as men of love, would have a healing balm on their hands to just heal those frictions, those divisions, those fallings out that occurred over the past years while Paul hadn't been there, because they'd learned how to love. And I want to suggest for us, this is probably the greatest lesson in life to learn. Have you learned how to love? Have you learned how to love people? The Christian mystic St. John of the Cross once said, In the evening of our lives, we will be judged by our love. You see, there are many things that might impress us about other people, about their abilities, about their appearance, about what they're doing in life. But do you know the one thing that impresses God most? What impresses God is their love, how much they love people. The question for us, the challenging question from these guys is, have we learned how to love like that? I know for myself, I've been on a journey in this. When I was younger, I was really impressed by people of great intellect, clever people that I hoped that if I hung around, I would become clever as well. But later on, I was impressed by people with abilities, whether in the Christian context or in the professional context, who seemed to do amazing things. I thought, if I hang around them... Wow, that might rub off on me. But you know what increasingly impresses me? As so I look out on the church, and as I get to know people, what impresses me are people that have learnt to love, that are just marked by overflowing love. I hope that some of that rubs off on me, actually. We know that in the first few Christian centuries, it was this radical, other-centered love that made such a tremendous difference. There was such a witness to the empire. One of the most uh, poignant and one of the clearest examples of this was in an outbreak of the smallpox disease in the second century, which wiped out nearly a quarter of the Roman Empire. And actually, in the city of Rome itself, where there are many Christians at that point, nearly everyone fled the city apart from the Christians because they wanted to stay and to look after the sick and the dying. And actually, later studies showed you were statistically more likely to survive smallpox if you knew a Christian compared to if you didn't. You were more likely to survive simply because they were marked by love and they were going to take care of you but actually if you knew christian it was a good thing they weren't going to run away they were going to look after you they were going to love you and you'd survive and i wonder why i wonder why soon after soon after many came to know him many chose to follow him many in fact an entire empire said no he is lord And the question for us, I think, before we end is the question, well, if that's what we're called to be, to be marked by that kind of love, how? How do we do it? How do we get there? Well, for Timothy and Epaphroditus, I think it was marked by that first decision that they chose not to live for themselves, but for Christ. And because they had orientated their whole lives around him, the love that they showed to others wasn't mustered up from themselves by effort and something they had to do, but actually it was a natural overflow from the one who was at the very center of their lives. You'll know that the Apostle John says that we love because he first loved us. If you find it difficult to love people, can I suggest to you, don't try and muster it up yourself actually find the love of Christ. Find his love for you. Abide in that love. And just let that love flow out from you. It's a love that's of a different quality and quantity than any other love on this earth. And he promises, he says, I'm here, the king of love, the one who gave himself in love for us, that we might give ourselves in love for others. Oh, that was the second thing. These two men were marked by love. They'd learnt how to love. I want to end with a story of a modern-day example of what this could look like if we learn these lessons that these guys model of living life, not for ourselves, but for Christ, and of living lives that are marked by love. Many of you will know the sad and tragic events of the early 1990s, where there was genocide in many countries in Africa, especially Rwanda. Uh, and it was due to a conflict between two warring tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Does everyone remember that? And it was an awful time. There were killing fields where thousands died in the space of a few hours. And in nearby Burundi, which was also suffering from this fallout between the two tribes that also lived in that country as well. On one of the main campuses of a university there, a number of uh, Hutu students were killed by their Tutsi fellow students. And all the Hutus in the university fled to the hills to run away from the encroaching violence. But something amazing happened. Their Tutsi Christian fellow students decided to follow them into the hills, not to kill them, but to look after them, to provide for them, to actually love them. They weren't living for themselves. They lived for the other. And those students were rejected by their families. You've chosen them over us. You've chosen them over your tribal allegiance. They were completely rejected by family and society. But the principal of the university, who was a non-Christian himself, later reflected this powerful lesson there was learnt. He said, our culture is disintegrating. On our campus, there are three types of people. There are Hutus, there are Tutsis, and there are Christians. If our culture is to survive, we must follow the example of the Christians. I don't know about you, but I long for that to be said of us. If our culture is to survive, if it's to be transformed, we must follow the example of the Christians. Let me pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're humbled by such spiritual greats and giants like Timothy and Epaphroditus, like Paul, and ultimately, as Jesus was amongst us. We pray that you would teach us how to not live lives for ourselves, but for the Lord Jesus to have everything revolving around him and not us. And we pray that you might teach us how to love. We pray that we might experience your love to such great measure that it overflows and impacts and changes the society around us. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray and do this in our midst here at St. Jude's. Amen. Amen.